RTHK News. It's 11 o'clock. I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. The authorities say they might prosecute a woman involved in the Territory's latest COVID outbreak for giving them false information. The Court of Final Appeal is to get a new judge from overseas just weeks after one resigned over the national security law. And Taiwan says it can't be expected to allow Hong Kong murder suspect Chan Tong Kai to just wander in as he pleases. Health officials say they're considering prosecuting a woman who gave them incorrect information on how she contracted COVID-19. The woman, a Thai national who lives in Qingyi, said she thought she had caught the virus from a friend who had returned to Thailand. In fact, the Centre for Health Protection says the friend was living in Chimsa Choi with four other Thais. She has tested preliminary positive, while one of her flatmates was confirmed to have the virus today. The centre's Dr Chuang Chuk Kwan says they looked into the information given by the Ching Yi woman, whose case number was 5111. You might have recalled that I mentioned that uh, 5111 had contact with a confirmed case who went back to Thailand. Um, this piece of information is wrong. A total of 11 people were confirmed to have COVID-19 today, with four of them contracting the virus locally. Seven more recently flew back from overseas, six with Nepal Airlines. Dr Truong says the airline is now banned from landing in Hong Kong until the 17th of this month. We do not know the reason for the a number of cases from the same flight. That's why we evoke our law, CAP 599H, to suspend the airline for two weeks similar to India airline before. The Deputy President of Britain's Supreme Court, Lord Patrick Hodge, has been appointed as a non-permanent judge of the Court of Final Appeal. Priscilla Ng reports. In a statement, Chief Executive Carrie Lam said she accepted the finding of the Judicial Officers Recommendation Commission and described Scottish-born Lord Hodge as a judge of eminent standing and reputation. The latest appointment will increase the number of non-permanent judges from other common law jurisdictions on Hong Kong's top court from 13 to 14. Mrs. Lamb said the panel of eminent judges from the U.S., Australia and Canada manifests the judicial independence of Hong Kong, helps maintain a high degree of confidence in our legal system and allows Hong Kong to maintain strong links with other common law jurisdictions. The Chief Justice Jeffrey Ma also welcomed Lord Hodge's appointment, saying the increase in non-permanent judges will provide greater flexibility in dealing with the Court of Final Appeals case load. The appointment follows the recent resignation of former Australian Judge James Spiegelman from the top court last month. Justice Spiegelman reportedly told Australian media that he had resigned for reasons related to the content of the national security legislation, but did not elaborate. Taiwan says the Hong Kong government needs to cooperate when it comes to the surrender of murder suspect Chan Tong Kai, and Taipei can't be expected to just allow him to wander in as he pleases. Mr Chan says he's willing to return to Taiwan to face justice in connection with the killing of his girlfriend, but it's not clear how he can make his way there. Damon Pang reports. Mr Chan's accused of murdering his girlfriend Poon Hiu Wing in Taiwan in 2018, with the Carrie Lam administration citing the case as it tried and failed to amend Hong Kong's extradition laws. The SAR government denies Taiwan's claim that a communication channel between police in the two places has been established. But Taiwan Premier Su Zheng Tang says the Hong Kong authorities should not be evasive and Taipei can't just allow Mr Chan to go there freely. 
The island's immigration ministry says the murder suspect isn't barred from traveling to Taiwan, but he's been marked as someone who cannot apply for a visa online like normal. Hong Kong pastor Peter Kun, who's been helping Mr Chen, says a law firm in Taiwan has been appointed to represent him. Taiwanese media quote the firm named as saying it has nothing to say about the case at this time. In response to media inquiries, the Security Bureau says the SAR government has no legal right to interfere in any decision by Mr Chan to surrender to the Taiwanese authorities. The Education Bureau has cancelled the registration of a school teacher. It says used pro-Hong Kong independence materials in class. The teacher is believed to have worked at the Alliance Primary School in Kowloon Tong. Officials say the teacher deliberately disseminated pro-independence messages which caused harm to the students. The Bureau says the teacher has been struck off to protect the interests of the students and to ensure public confidence in the teaching profession. You're listening to RTHK. The time's exactly five minutes past 11. A constitutional law expert says the full impact of the national security law Beijing imposed on Hong Kong three months ago is still to be seen. Top officials have recently been praising the legislation for restoring stability in the SAR and benefiting its people, dismissing concerns that it has undermined freedoms here. Hong Kong University professor Simon Young agrees that some stability has recently returned to the city, but he told Mike Weeks that that's not really due to the security law. The COVID situation and the laws that have been put in place have, of course, I think, been the main uh, factor for why we haven't been seeing people coming out to protest. And, of course, the police have been leveraging on the legitimacy of those laws to try to control gatherings. I also think there's a lot of ignorance about the law. And so many people are self-censoring themselves and trying to not get caught in the net of the law. The police have obviously been emboldened by this new law, and we see them uh, exhibiting a rather aggressive posture more often these days. So the combination, I think, of all these uh, factors has probably brought about stability. I mean, what we haven't addressed is really, I think, the underlying division in society. It hasn't, I don't think it's brought about any greater unity. Um, I also think trust in, in institutions hasn't been improved. There's still a lot of distrust in whether it's the police or the LegCo or, or the executive branch. So I think the government still has a, a long ways to go. Um, it may well be that at least if it has brought about some stability, we can at least refocus our attention on other things that are important. But from what you're saying, the main impact of the law then is the sort of chilling effect it's had Mm. on civil society. But it's not only been on that, has it? It's been on the administration of justice, schools, Mm. the press, and even business. Absolutely. I think some of that is intended. Uh, There are a couple of provisions in the new law that go beyond the criminal offences. They talk about strengthening uh, measures to manage uh, certain groups in society, uh, schools included, uh, universities, uh, the foreign media, foreign governments. And we're seeing now, I think, that some measures are being put in place. I recall recently a measure about the U.S. consulate uh, getting permission before they can meet with government officials, the registration of the media. Uh, so I think we're starting to see the, the wider implications and reach of this law. Um, that may not give rise to criminal liability immediately, but of course it it touches, I think, 
you know, a lot more than that small group that people, uh, that the uh, government had reassured us. Uh, it, of course, touches society as a whole. And I think that's probably something that, that they intended as well, because the problem of patriotism is something that they see as being fairly widespread. Experts in respiratory diseases and public health have expressed concern that Hong Kong could soon see a fourth wave of COVID-19 cases. That's because infections with no clear source are continuing to emerge at a time when social distancing rules have been eased. Francis Sit reports. The experts raised their concerns after two recent infections were linked to a Chimsatru bar known as China Secret. A 22-year-old student who visited it was diagnosed with coronavirus on Saturday, while a Thai visitor who tested positive last week has also been there on the same night. It's now emerged that the Hart Avenue bar may have also violated regulations preventing more than two people being seated at a table. Respiratory disease expert Lun Chi Chu said this shows the problems that exists with the government inspections and enforcement of the regulations. Although there have been figures released on the frequency of inspection and also on the law enforcement, but it appears that the actual situation on the ground may not be as optimal as we hope. We are allowing these premises to reopen under specific conditions. We need to also ensure that these conditions are fully met. Otherwise, that may affect the control of the disease and the community may need to pay a very huge cost for that. Dr. Lern said authorities also have to explain why the Thai woman had been staying in Hong Kong since March. He warned that there are already early signs of a rebound in COVID-19 here, urging authorities to closely watch this to see if social distancing measures need to be tightened again. Benjamin Cowling, a public health professor at the University of Hong Kong, also warned that the city could experience a fourth wave of infections this month. He said the fact that cases with no obvious source are still being found indicates that there are more such infections in the community. Professor Cowling told RTHK's Backchat program that the recent easing of social distancing measures had increased the chances of an outbreak, as the China secret bar infections show. So there's opportunities for infection to spread and sooner or later the virus will take one of those opportunities whether it's in the bar whether it's in another one of these gatherings so i think fairly soon we're going to see some outbreak and maybe that's going to develop into our fourth wave by mid to late october it will be clear i hope not but that's my gut feeling. A government advisor on battling the pandemic, Professor David Ho from the Chinese University, also warned of the risk of a fourth wave. He urged the authorities to handle the situation carefully. A survey has found that nine in ten ethnic minorities and asylum seekers have faced difficulties finding a place to live in Hong Kong, with more than half saying they have suffered discrimination by landlords or real estate agents. Jimmy Choi reports. The Hong Kong Refugee Ministry Group, Hong Kong Unison and other groups polled 140 asylum seekers and people from ethnic minorities, and 92% said they had encountered difficulties while looking for a place to live. More than half said they faced unwelcoming attitudes. Around half of the respondents who reported having faced difficulties said landlords refused to let out flats to them. Other issues raised include property agents or landlords being unwilling to speak English. Isabella Ng, an assistant professor from the Education University's Department of Asian and Policy Studies, who helped conduct the survey, says many respondents believe that unhappy experiences were likely rooted in discrimination because of their ethnicity or nationality. 
almost an overwhelming majority say they have faced difficulties. And then when we further ask them why, what, what do they feel, what are the reasons they believe that kind of stopped them from getting houses easily, then they speculated several reasons, you know, like perhaps it's the, the ethnicity or nationality. And these rate really high um, when we ask them these questions. She also called on the government to give asylum seekers the right to work or to increase the amount of rental subsidies for them so they can afford better housing. Mr A, a refugee who's lived in Hong Kong for 16 years, says several property agents had refused to look for a place for him to rent after he told them that he's from Africa. He said eventually he was able to settle down with the help of a Chinese friend. When you know that you are not a troublemaker, you know your own identity and you know your own personality, that you are not going to make any trouble to the landlord, it's really sad to be rejected like that. And in fact, for now, I have been in the same uh, room since, 2000, uh, since 2011 and I have really good relationships with my landlord. Hensler's from the Refugee Ministry Group says few asylum seekers or ethnic minorities lodge complaints to the Equal Opportunities Commission after they suffer discrimination because the complaint system is tedious and time-consuming. He also says some property agents have been taking advantage of a loophole in the race discrimination ordinance. The current legislation says if you say I'm not letting you a flat because you are black, then that is racial discrimination. But if you say I don't let you that place because you are have an Ugandan passport or a West African passport, then the law doesn't protect the person. It's, it's ironic in a way. Other countries have included nationality in the legislation. That is a, a next step Hong Kong should take. Mr Lutz says many people are prejudiced against ethnic minorities, adding that community education is the key to tackling discrimination. A man from the Netherlands and a shop manager have been sentenced to four months in prison after admitting arson. Kowloon City Court heard that the pair threw paper into a burning bin during an anti-police protest in Prince Edward on February the 29th. And there's been criticism of US President Trump for leaving the hospital where he's been treated for COVID-19 to drive past his supporters and wave. One doctor at the Walter Reed Hospital called it insane political theatre and said it risked the lives of others inside Mr Trump's hermetically sealed car. A reminder of our top stories tonight. The authorities say they might prosecute a woman involved in the Territory's latest COVID-19 outbreak for giving them false information. The Court of Final Appeal is to get a new judge from overseas just weeks after one resigned over the national security law and Taiwan says it can't be expected to allow Hong Kong murder suspect Chan Tong Kai to just wander in as he pleases. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 it's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. The government has been urged to reimpose limits on rent increases and introduce regular subsidies for grassroots families. The concerning Grassroots Housing Alliance says underprivileged residents are under more financial pressure than ever as they struggle with the effects of the pandemic. It says a one-off subsidy that's currently available will do little to help and much of it will go towards rent. The Alliance's Eunice Chan told Candice Wong that it's time to bring back the rent controls that were abolished 16 years ago. 
as we saw, a lot of uh, underprivileged or people who live in safety flat flats, they are paying unreasonable rents because of the absence of tenancy control. And also some organizations, they have conducted some uh, survey, which told us that some tenants, they may also increase the rents after the government issue this subsidy. So we think that only with tenancy control can the rights of the underprivileged can be uh, protected. Has the COVID-19 pandemic make the lives harder for the grassroots families, especially those who live in subdivided flats units? How is it affecting the rents? A lot of underprivileged, they might face uh, unemployment under this coronavirus. And, but at the same time, the house owner, they may raise the rents out of any reason. So they are facing a harder life under this situation. So this is, that's why we think that tenancy control should be enforced together with the rent subsidies. And uh, how exactly do you want the tenancy control to be brought back? Relevant policies uh, have been cancelled in Hong Kong in 2004. What exactly do you hope the tenancy control could be in the future? Um, One of the main points is that uh, we think that uh, the government should set up a committee to discuss how the when should be set. For example, uh, we think that the rents uh, should be controlled by uh, the inflation. And we also hope that this committee can involve the force of the underprivileged and not only the tenders. The government has set up the task force for the study on tenancy control of subdivided units. Um, Have you met or discussed with them? Actually, our alliance and other organizations or NGOs have met some of the committee members. But we think that um, they can increase the transparencies of their work. Two days ago, they have held the um, so-called public forum, but we think that this uh, arrangement is definitely not friendly for uh, those grassroots family because this conference or this public forum is held online. So we think that this working group, they should hold the public forum maybe in public area so that uh, the grassroots family can voice out in person with the committee members. And as for the rent subsidies, how do you want it to be enforced? We think that this subsidy should target those people who live in subdivided flats because uh, they are now paying unreasonable rents and we think that this subsidy should be issued monthly. As we know, uh, the average rents of subdivided flats uh, is around 5000 now and um, we think that the subsidies should help them to pay at least around um, 30% of the rent. I heard the government has been rolling out a subsidy for N-have-nots, meaning those who don't live in public housing or don't receive the CSSA welfare. Can those subsidies help these families to pay their rents? The N for notes allowance uh, for now is uh, definitely not enough uh, to subsidize the living of the uh, grassroots family. So we think that even though uh, the government uh, has uh, issued this N for notes allowance, the government should at the same time uh, implement the um, rent allowance for those people. 
Eunice Chan from the Concerning Grassroots Housing Alliance. Officials say applications for the government's new inflation-linked retail bonds will be accepted from October the 23rd. The I-bonds have a tenor of three years with a minimum interest rate of 2%. Jim Gould asked Alex Wong, Director of Asset Management at Ample Capital, whether he expects this latest round of I-bonds to be popular with investors. I think it should still be quite popular because in the current environment, actually, interest rate is quite low. And another thing is the equity market, actually, is very difficult to pick. So I think people would like that. The Monetary Authority says the minimum return has been increased to make the bonds more attractive in a low-interest environment. But what are the other main investment options uh, do uh, people have to that these I-bonds will have to compete against? I think the major comparison would be other bonds which are not tied to inflation. So first of all, we have a minimum guarantee of 2%, which is okay in the current environment because inflation probably will not be that high. So at 2% actually guarantees a higher level. And if you look at other options like, say, corporate bonds or the treasuries uh, elsewhere, actually treasuries probably offer lower lower rates right now. And if you look at corporate bonds, actually they're tied to the quality of the corporates. I think that probably people may not be too comfortable with and the uh, and the rates actually are not that attractive as well. So I think the competition actually may not be too strong as compared to this. But there are more large scale IPOs and new listings coming up. Do you think some investors may rather put their money into new shares than into I bonds? Oh yeah, uh, IPO would be another choice. I think people would like to go into IPO because they offer higher returns, but uh, because the subscription rate actually would be quite high, if you take into account of the allocation factor, then the return actually may not be too high as well. So I think uh, people would do both because uh, iPhone probably also uh, would not give you too much uh, allocation. So uh, I think uh, both would be welcomed by investors. What effect do you think the global economic outlook may have on investor sentiment for iBonds? I think uh, actually if you look at the global macroeconomic environment, the inflation actually would stay low. So uh, if they do not get that 2% guarantee, actually iBonds would not be attractive. But since uh, they raise the minimum guarantee, that makes uh, this will be a very okay investment. So I think the environment overall actually makes the 2% guarantee a little bit more attractive. Alex Wong from Ample Capital speaking to Jim Gould there. At the start of the coronavirus pandemic, many nations started to close their borders and restrict travel. Millions of people across the world were scrambling to get home. Now, months later, there are still large numbers of people who are stuck in countries they had only planned to visit for a few days or weeks. The BBC's Nick Johnson reports on the cases of Australian citizens living in limbo in the UK who say they've been completely let down by their government. Hi, I'm Sandy. Um, welcome to my my current house or home. Okay, so go follow the arrows going that way. Sandy James arrived in Europe from Australia at the beginning of March for what was supposed to be a 10-day working visit. Nearly seven months later, she's still here and through sheer goodwill is living in a temporarily closed hostel in Bristol in the west of England. This one's my room. At the end of March, Australia closed its borders to everyone except its citizens and permanent residents. For those that do make it home, it's compulsory to quarantine in a designated hotel at their own expense for 14 days. To make sure there's enough room in those hotels, the government has capped the number of arrivals into the country at about 4,000 people per week. 
Airlines are frequently cancelling flights and tickets in order to comply with the cap. My mental health has been shocking, like um, constantly anxious. I've started having panic attacks again, which I haven't had for a very long time. Um, and yeah, quite severe depression at, at stages as well. With no income, nowhere to live, no plan, Sandy got in touch with the Australian High Commission in London. I phoned them many, many times, um, trying to get some kind of assistance to either get home or be able to survive here. Um, and on two occasions, I was told to contact the local council to ask for homeless accommodation. And I was given the phone number for the Good Samaritans to um, get advice about how to get food parcels. And that was all. That's all they've done. No, that's where you've been up to. Anything exciting today? Anything exciting? You're on holidays now, aren't you? Sandy's experience is one of thousands of stories of anger, loneliness and heartbreak. Kieran Poole rushed from Australia to the UK because of a family emergency. My brother was ill, um, seriously ill. Um, unfortunately, it uh, resulted in a, his passing and a funeral um, back in August now. But uh, yeah, since then I've been struggling to get home. Unable to get back, he's staying with his dad on the Wirral in northwest England, some 10,000 miles from his wife and three children in Sydney. Finding out that he'd been bumped off his flight was just, oh, after all these weeks, we were yeah, really upset. So um, it was very disappointing. Amnesty International Australia estimates there are as many as 35,000 Australian citizens stranded overseas and claim around a third of those are in the UK. It says the solution is for the Australian government to increase capacity in those hotels in which those returning have to quarantine. My name is Joel Clark and I'm a campaigner at Amnesty International Australia. The International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights says that no one shall be arbitrarily deprived of the right to enter his own country. This is clearly being violated by the Australian government. Australia is being reviewed uh, under the Universal Periodic Review um, in early next year. I think if this was still an issue, I think it would definitely be an avenue to be raising at the United Nations. The Australian High Commission in London has told us it continues to help its vulnerable citizens and, while they wait, the Commission says, each has been eligible to claim for 10 nights in an airport hotel as well as additional living expenses. A technical glitch that saw nearly 16,000 coronavirus cases go unreported in England has delayed efforts there to tra trace contacts of people who tested positive. Public Health England says 15,841 cases between September the 25th and October the 2nd were left out of the UK's daily case figures. They were later added to Saturday and Sunday's figures. All those who tested positive have been informed, but others in close contact with them were not. RTHK's UK correspondent Peter Anderson told Anna Marie Evans about how the news has been received in England. Obviously opposition parties and critics of the government are seizing upon this. They are saying it's shambolic. They are saying that it has left the public understandably alarmed by what's going on. And I think this is hugely embarrassing for the government. We have had a number of issues, a stop-start approach to the test and trace uh, 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 
uh, initiative here in the UK. Uh, the UK government has had problems, and these figures do not help, and the very fact that there has been what Boris Johnson, our Prime Minister, described as a failure in the counting system, will have drawn further criticism and further suspicion that the test and trace system is not fit for purpose. These figures, as you say, from 25th of September to the 2nd of October, it was an eight-day period, and it meant that roughly one in four of all confirmed cases during that eight-day period were not reported. This is down to an IT error within Public Health England. That's an average of 1,980 cases per day. The fundamental problem here is that the test and trace system relies on these results being found out very quickly so that contacts of those with coronavirus can be sourced and uh, informed very quickly, ideally within 48 hours. And it seems that many people were not told quickly enough that they were in close contact with somebody who was actually confirmed as having the virus. Is it easy to get a test in England currently? Uh, officially, yes. The uh, amount of tests has ramped up considerably. Uh, we uh, had from a standing start with just a, a matter of a, a few hundred tests in the early days, but now there are tests uh, uh, set up across the country, uh, drive-in test centres, there are mobile uh, centres, and also there are uh, tests being sent out to hospitals, care homes, private individuals. The problem that we have in the UK is that while the tests are available, there have been problems in actually processing them. And so people have managed to get a test, perhaps after queuing online or having to turn up at a test centre keeping their fingers crossed. But we have had capacity issues here in the UK where people have had tests and because there has been a huge reliance on a number of universities, private setups which are being brought into this uh, from a standing start, it has meant that there have been delays in actually uh, processing those tests. And again, that adds to confusion, that leads to considerable delays in getting the results back to people and informing those who are close to them that they could potentially be at risk themselves. Those stories were part of the Newswrap programme, which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Todd Harding from our newsroom. The Community Care Fund has launched the Living Subsidy Programme for eligible non-public housing and non-CSSA low-income households to relieve their financial pressure. Applications are being handled in phases. Four or more person households can submit their applications from now until the 30th of November in person or by mail to designated service units. For details, please visit the Community Care Fund website or call 2180-6666. Live across Hong Kong, this is Radio 3. January to December, we'll have moments to
Summertime in Venice, played by Mantovani. Step into my heart 